Amber Case, and I'm the author of Calm Technology, which is a book about designing for your attention and designing better technology that works with you instead of against you, that makes good use of your attention instead of distracts you from it. Excellent. Well, we're, we're, in, we're in the Swift Business Forum in New York, um, and I'm joined here by Amber, who's going to talk to us a little bit about how technology is impacting uh, finance and also, I guess, to a certain extent, global trade, but in our day-to-day -day lives. So um, maybe you can sort of explain what's your central premise at the moment. Sure. Well, the, there's these principles of calm technology which came out of Xerox Park in the 90s. And what I try to do is kind of dredge up things that people forgot. Uh, usually when they're created, they're created out of phase with the era that they're supposed to be in. So calm technology was really ahead of its time. It said that at some point in the future, technology would be cheap, but attention would be expensive. And at that point, how technology engaged with our attention would make or break it. So if you look at people managing portfolios and funds, they don't have attention to, to give the right customer service to everybody. There's people staring at lots and lots of trading screens. There are now robo-advisors. There are people trying to send a wire transfer. And all of this is still stuck with lots and lots of paperwork to fill out. Um, it's not necessarily as quick as it could be. Um, credit card fraud is still an issue. There's still everything that we had in the 90s is, is still true today. And so it comes down to design. If you design your automation better, that allows people to, you know, automation that aids people, not um, just makes them babysit a machine, uh, then people can be more efficient and effective about their jobs. It's all about amplifying the best of what humans can do and what machines can do. And machines are really good at figuring out, you know, a little bit of a pattern in long-term data, coming up with some anomaly, but it's the human's job to look at that and say, okay, I'm going to check this against real data and actually see if that's a leading indicator of something. So I think a lot of people expect AI and machine learning to tell us the answer, to be wise, but we are the ones whose imaginations and wisdom need to be applied to it uh, in order to you know, give us something back. Uh, and I think that's, that's kind of the problem. It's an all or nothing type scenario in the, in the world today. It's, I think there's this idea that either AI will save us or AI is horrible and will destroy us. And the idea that AI is horrible and will destroy us is from film. The idea that AI will save us completely is also from film. So neither of these are true. Um, automation exists, I mean, it, it exists since the first tools. Once we started evolving outside of ourselves, having hammers as an extension of fists and knives as an extension of our teeth, we were able to trade out those tools and work alongside them. And those tools enhanced our capacity. They became extensions of ourselves in the same way that an automobile is an extension of ourselves and allows us to go faster. So if we look at that, if we look at the history of tools, my background's in anthropology, but if we look at the history of tools this way, we can actually make better decisions on financial technology automation. Whatever, um, whatever uh, group of people that we're part of, uh, whatever we need to do to get our job done, we can make a better decision if the technology is simple to understand and helps aid us. That doesn't mean that we need to understand how to build the technology, but if we can understand the system around it, then it can help us along and we can add our imagination to it. So put the intelligence into the artificial intelligence. Yeah, or as Mark Weiser said, who's one of the founders of Calm Technology, he said, we don't need smarter devices, we need smarter humans. Yeah. How do we have devices that aid our intelligence? 
So uh, how, how do we? I mean, what, what's, what, what is the, the next steps with this thing? Sure, well, some of the principles of calm technology are technology should take the least amount of attention and only when necessary. We should make better use of our peripheral attention. Just think about how a car is, is designed. Uh, a car, you don't stare at the foot pedal the whole time. Could you imagine if a car was built like we built technology today? You'd have to stare at every single piece. You'd have to wait for something to load. You'd, you'd Ethernet, uh, you'd Bluetooth into the street light and have to change. You know, these horrible, these horrible things. Or you look at something like an escalator. When an escalator breaks, it turns into stairs, right? So like when a car breaks, you know, all sorts of things have to go wrong before it's fully broken. Um, we use a foot pedal, we use sometimes a stick shift, we have the rear view mirrors that we can glance around us. The whole car is about using our periphery um, to enable us to focus on our task. Whereas with a phone, we're dropping all of that and just using our primary attention. And I think a lot of design methodology is still from the era of the desktop, the 90s era, which is you have all the attention in the world, you have all the power in the world and all the connectivity and you can stare at, at a perfect screen with lots of information. But the world is not a desktop, we are computing in between moments and we need to have information in our peripheral attention. Whether that's the server is down or your trade is in trouble or there's a new piece of information and there's little lights or tones in your environment or a soundtrack that, that makes you aware of changes. Uh, I know that particle physicists do this. They were sick of staring at these screens of all the different particle data events in the particle accelerators. It, so much information. Um, so they started to sonify the information. So you could just sit there as a particle physicist at CERN and kind of listen. And if an interesting particle event happened, it would be a very specific sound. And you'd say, ah, now I can look at the screen. Yeah. So they were able to do all of their other things they're interesting intellectual things while listening, just like we listen to the radio. That's why podcasts have become so popular. Something that we can listen to while doing something else versus, you know, we look at Netflix, but oftentimes we look at Netflix because we're falling asleep to it, right? It's like something that we're also using as peripheral attention. So there's a tremendous power in peripheral attention that we've forgotten. We forgot the foot pedal. That was the industrial revolution in the car. We forgot, um, you know, these kind of mirrors and these indicators and these tones and these lights and these things. Um, and those all came from home appliances, badly. Um, but there's, there's a lot of opportunity, I mean, it, especially in, let's say, healthcare. There's this thing called alert fatigue, and doctors and nurses hear between 1,000 and 10,000 alerts a day. It's one of the leading causes of, of mistakes in hospitals. A new nurse will answer a, an urgent request in in seven minutes, and, and a, a veteran nurse who's been there for a couple years will answer it in 40 because they'll be fatigued because no longer do the alerts mean anything. Plus, they're in a really bad frequency, they annoy people, and they keep patients up. These kinds of principles can be applied to almost every industry. It's all about getting your mental space back so that you can do real things again, so that you can have what the Greeks called Kairos time. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's Kronos and Kairos time. Kronos is the industrial time. We're having a meeting right now. It lasts for 30 minutes. It's very formal, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, and in that meeting, we're supposed to be doing these things, right? And when it's done, it's done. This is oftentimes in a corporation, especially out of the Industrial Revolution, corporations are about repeating the same thing again and again. Kronos time. But all of the advances, innovations, weird stuff comes from Kairos time. Comes from, you know, the CEO going on a vacation 
and in the middle of the night saying, oh my gosh, our pricing model's all wrong. They could never come up with that unless they had that squishy time. I mean, this starts with Archimedes, right? Sitting in the bathtub learning that, oh, this is, this is how we get density, right? Eureka runs through town and tells the king, you know, this is how we can figure out whether gold is, is um, false or not. Your crown is fake, you know? But it's all about taking a break and doing something else. So most of our companies don't have any Kairos time built in. Most of our technology is in Kronos time. So we just end up getting in this situation where we're thinking exactly the same way, we're not being very innovative, um, and all the alerts just show up in that time. So if we can start to take these alerts and put them into your peripheral attention and get back some of that Kairos time, we're not going to make the same bad decisions again and again. This is why big companies buy startups because startups have more Kairos time. Startups have that in-between time, that weird time, they're very excited about things, and then when they get bought, the Kronos time gets, gets loaded upon them, and within a year, you know, they're usually out of there. Um, TXF has still got off a football table, so we're, we're hoping that uh, it's uh, the peripheral, the alpha waves, the, the, the things that happen when you're not, you're not really thinking about That's the, right. the thing. And the foosball table is often uh, you know, a way to say we have Kairos time, even if you don't really have Kairos time, right? It's, hey, look, there, there could be some time, but then everybody feels guilty to do it. It's often in a very obvious location. So if you do use <laughs> it, every my desk. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> if you use it, everybody hears it in the office. It's very obvious who's using it, you know, and I, why would you use it during daytime? You need to be busy, busy, busy. You know, this is a very American thing. Um, but it's, you know, I, I kind of like going to Sweden and, and some of these other places because you go home at a certain time. And so in, in, in some places like Germany or in France where you don't have to answer your work email, you're not, you're not required to, the decisions that you make within that time limitation are better. You're not sitting there in the meeting saying, okay, well, we'll say that we'll do this on Monday. We have to get it done because, you know, we have to leave the office. Like, we, we can't just sit around, you know. And so having less time and saying, you know, what's the most efficient thing to do or what's the clever thing to do or... We don't have time to train on a new system, so how do we fix the existing one? I mean, these are these are more boring, you know, management methodologies, but they end up saving a lot of time. So one one thing that's uh, particularly in the sector that, that I'm in on trade finance, uh, uh, traditional trade finance is very much paper based, very much seen as a backwater in certain respects. That that it, but it's being digitized in small pockets. Having said that. Are there lessons that, that, that the digitization of, of, of process and of, of, uh, of technology can, can, can learn from making things a little bit easier, calmer, smarter? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of it is you know, contract automation. There's a lot of room to grow there. Um, there's programming languages come out. Uh, there's programming languages coming out that are legal programming languages. So you can speak in legalese and then turn that into code. That's pretty interesting. Um, and you know, the question is, how is the digitization done? So I had a lot of friends in, in law school, and they said, look, to fund our bar exam, we're going to digitize some medical records. I started a medical record digitization company. So they go to all their family and friends who are doctors and lawyers, and they say, we'll digitize your practice. And you know, it was interesting, because on the one hand, you can access all these things online. Um, but if the system goes down, is there a backup copy? You know, like, um, and another issue was 
they had a secondary thing that they had to work on. If, you, if you're dealing with paper and you're faxing things and mailing things, you have a record, um, you know which fax was sent where, you have phone numbers, you're calling people up, there's kind of an analog social network around that. Once you digitize it, a lot of these things start to disappear, so you know less about the person that you're sending an item to. Plus, if they're stored in a central repository, you have a security issue. Not only are you doing your primary job of finance, you have a secondary job of security. And not every company, even security companies, can do that to both jobs well. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's another way to look at it, which is a, a decentralization, not like a blockchain model, but just everyone has their own database. And when something changes, all of the new information gets written to your database or your, uh, your company's database. And that way, when somebody hacks your system, because they will, they're only getting what's shared the last two hours in that database. So it's less. You're always going to get hacked, but it's not putting the onus of security on your individual company mm. um, because security is expensive and it's hard to get funding to do security before there's a breach. And then afterwards, you're out of money. Right? <laughs> you have to pay, pay out. So um, just, just setting up systems in, a, in the opposite way is kind of interesting. I'd like to see that for medical records. I go in, I bring my medical records with me, I get them written to, I take them home with me, right? Because it's personal data, so it should be near me. Yeah. Um, you know, these, these models aren't perfect. We're going from a mechanical state where things are very well known, like on the web or with a fax or with analog paperwork. It is, this is exactly what it is right now. This paper will never change, right? Digital means corrupted documents, you know, and, but it also means speed. Uh, does it mean improvement of process? Sometimes it makes for more process because people are dealing with more things. So it really depends. Like I would look at different industries and ask 50 people, what was your digitization process like? What did you regret? What did you like? What would you avoid? So that when you do your own process, you can avoid all of those things. It's kind of like for anything. It's like I wanted to write a book, so I asked 50 people who wrote books. What did you like? What did you not like? What, you know, so that you can learn from other people's mistakes. Because there's other industries that are very heavily digitized, like the credit card fraud industry. They know exactly what percentage they can send to an automation to check for fraud, and they know exactly what percentage to send to a human. They, they have it down. You know, they know that they'll never be able to fully automate, and that's a good thing, because they know that. Right? They've gotten to the point where they understand that there's some things that are better done by, by humans. Um, the company that bought our startup back in 2012 had very well-paid admins, and the admins were kind of the stewards of the information in the company, and they were around for 10 or 20 years. They really understood all the paperwork and the bureaucracy in the company, and they handheld people to walk them through the paperwork. And that ended up saving weeks and weeks of time for everybody because they were the experts. And I think a lot of automation shifts the idea that we should be experts onto us. So instead of calling a tra travel agent who's really good at the, at the MTI matrix system or whatever they use to book their flights, you go through Google Flights. So you're becoming the expert in travel, but you're becoming an expert in everything too. So when you go to the grocery checkout, no longer is there somebody with a PLU clicking something and feeling proud about it. You're the one you know, doing a digital checkout and ends up taking the same amount of time because you can't scan the barcode and somebody has to come over and check your ID if you're buying alcohol. And so it becomes this issue where the labor gets shoved onto the end consumer and the end consumer is never going to be perfect at these devices because every supermarket has their own digital system. 
And the whole point of having a worker is to know the system well and then provide customer service on top. Or like when people get wealthy, they don't buy automated things. They buy handcrafted Italian leather shoes. They buy local foods. They vacation in Italy where they can eat food nearby. Right. Vinyl is a new digital, so I, I, I guess to sort of the, 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 these these sort of go back to back to source. Yeah. I mean, does that does that actually have uh, implications for for smaller companies? Like I say, banks have to a certain extent offloaded a lot of uh, of some of these things because they're not taking the risks themselves. They're doing these. They're they're, they're partnering with fintechs, etc., to to take some of these risks at a at a more individual level. But is there still a role for these for these for for banks? I mean, we're, we're here at Swift. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a tremendous role for banks. There's a few different ways banks can play. Um, they can partner with companies like Simple who have a very good user interface, very good digital user interface, and just make it very simple. Like, Banks are generally not going to be able to make a good user interface. So they could partner with a company that does and then just be the bank behind the scenes, handle all the regulation. That's hard to do, mm -hmm. right? Um, in Portland, Oregon, there's credit unions, there's Umqua Bank, there's these friendly banks. You know, In Spain, there's a very friendly sensory bank. You know? And it gets people to go in and hang out. And you want to go to the, your bank. I mean, for a lot of people who are busy, they want mobile deposits. They want mobile fraud detection. They want, you know, through Google Hangouts, I get fraud detection. I get notification of every single thing that I've spent. And I can see immediately, and then I can contact. I don't want to have to call customer service. I want my bot to do that. I want to send out a bot that says, hey, there's fraud. Can you handle this? And then they send a thing back that says it's been done. You know, so there's just more user experience stuff so that I won't have to call somebody up. You know, I want very easy transfers so that I can do you know, my small business from the road from any country. I want it to be very easy to have a document so that I can get paid around the world. I want all of the VAT and all these different tax, I want all of that automatically handled and, and calculated uh, in real time, depending on what it is, right? Uh, all the currencies and things like that. So I think. There's a lot of room to grow on the design side, bringing, um, bringing capacity, turning people into superhumans. I want a whole bank in my phone, right? Plus the customer service. I think Simple's done a really good job at that. I think there's some other apps like, you know, Robinhood, free trades, great, got it. You know, yeah. been using it for four years. Um, I tried to use E-Trade, and it was just like, why should I have to use a desktop to bank uh, or to invest? I'm going to be late on all my trades, right? So, so you want the API to be embedded in, 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 in? I think so. I mean, I think that banks can provide a tremendous capacity and power, uh, but there needs to be a partnership with good design. And once that good design is there, you can have all the banks behind the, behind the scenes guaranteeing security or whatever like that. But it should also be, you know, a friendly face. So the more automation that happens, the more important customer service becomes. Remember getting money. Um, from our investors and putting it in Silicon Valley Bank. There was no bank branch that we went to, but this guy showed up at our office and did all the banking with us. Just this guy that we knew. You know, Hi, I'm your representative at Silicon Valley Bank. Let me know what you want. Wow, <laughs> you know, can you imagine? Some, like, I don't know if millennials would want somebody to come to their house to handle all that stuff, but I'm sure they will want somebody to help them set up a 401k and explain it to them. Yeah. There's just so much, you know, banking right now, it's transitioning, but banking is ugly, unapproachable, and miserable for a lot of people. A lot of people are afraid to check their bank account. You know, 
the fact that every single bank statement is texted to me after every single transaction is really nice. I know exactly where I am with my finances, um, but not a lot of people have that set up, and so they have no clue. Um, you know, it, it leaves room for services like, and I'm speaking from like millennial perspective, I guess, right now, but services like Acorns can come in and say, hey, round up your your spending money, so you buy something for two twenty-five. We'll round it up to the nearest dollar, and you invest that. So invest your pocket change over time, so you don't even notice. That's cool. You know, there's a lot of different opportunities for these kind of in-between solutions. Um, it doesn't all have to be blockchain, etc. I mean, this is uh, <laughs> no. Uh, it can be really straightforward. It can also just be pre-filling a paperwork for you. Here's your tax document. It's pre-filled. You know. Here's this, it's pre-filled for you and, you, and you just have to check it. It might not be filled completely properly, <laughs> but at least you have a start. You know, and that's where the kind of machine learning, or at least just automation, I just like to call it automation, um, really, really gets you. Uh, and if, you, you know, if you're like a bank or something and you um, want to do automated tellers or something like that, just go to everybody who's digitized already and say to the customer representatives, which one do you like? You know? Which service do you like? Which model do you like? Which system do you like? And if they, if you find the, you know, the system that they love, buy that, right? You've already had everybody beta testing it. Um, and if you find that everybody hates it, and there's some service rep that's trying to get you to buy their version of automation with a lot of steak dinners, don't do it. You know, it's it's, and then you get vendor lock-in, and you've trained everybody, and you've actually lost money. So in some cases, automation loses money because there's so much maintenance. In some cases, it really helps. Like I've, I've been tracking Square because it enabled, after the recession, all of those tiny little food truck vendors and small businesses to not spend $40,000 on a POS system with some crazy lock-in for two to three years. I mean, that ate the market. And in exchange, Square gets a transaction hit, like a, or a, a nice transaction bonus, but they also get to see all of the data on all the small businesses and which ones to send loans to and they can sell that to banks. I mean, wow, <laughs> like, that's amazing, right? So again, Square is a design interface that banks could partner with. Like there's all sorts of different partnerships in the design realm that will really amplify like small banks, large banks, every kind of bank, right? Um, it's just in looking in the mundane, you know, what's, what's changed in the landscape that people are actually using not pie in the sky ideas or not the promise of blockchain or just a little bit more tech and everything's solved and then partner with those companies with the best design. Um, there's a, a few designers that said we're going to make a $10,000 portfolio 10 years ago and they said we're just going to invest in companies that have ex uh, exceptional user experience. So they had you know, Amazon and Netflix and Google and all these different companies nice. uh, and they made a lot um, and it was just kind of this silly idea. But I think that's the best thing. And then once you buy a company, don't you know? Don't destroy their user experience department, um, but empower the lowest common denominator. You're like empower all of the customer service representatives. If you have really great employees, you know, try to get rid of as many middle managers as you can, which is really hard. Um, try to find out the quiet people that are doing a great job, the ones that you haven't noticed, the ones that aren't drawing any attention to what they've done, and reward them. Um, it's really hard to do. It's kind of backwards, um, but it you know, and that goes for for every industry as well because those are the people uh, that that have the touch points. Like I'd like to see customer service reps getting paid 90k a year. You have automation helping them, so you've actually saved money and you use some of that money 
to have the best customer service, you will get so many customers. I mean, just look at Virgin Airlines. Like, all they did was change the, um, uh, they changed the, uh, uh, the lighting in the planes and just a few little pieces. All you had to do is just do some sensory tweaks and then suddenly, wow, this is a great thing. Same with banks. Um, and, yeah. I mean, just, just as a final sort of question then, Here's the here's the here's the blue sky thinking, and I'm sure you're you're asked this. Yeah, what 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 will this look like? And okay, I'm only say five years time. Let's not say twenty or thirty years time. But um, the companies with the best design will win. Companies with the best design will win. Absolutely. And that will apply to all trade finance companies and all all of our sector as well. People moving moving money along yeah. supply chains. I guess. And design doesn't mean how it looks. It yeah. means how it works. So the companies with the least amount of components. Uh, you know, if, if I was just speaking at, at ARM, they, you know, they do chips. Yeah. So why did they win as a chip company? Well, they made a chip with the least amount of components to get to the job done, and then they always worked within those constraints. They said, let's make it the smallest, easiest to produce, or hard to produce, but you know, long term. Look at the technologies that have been around for 20 years, the background behind the scenes. Can you make you know, if you're going to do blockchain, can you make a speedy blockchain? You know, but <laughs> what can you do that will last the test of time that reduces the amount of parts? You know, do you really need to automate something? You know, can you have a human do a better job? Um, the companies that I've seen that focus on rewarding employees are winning, are going to win much more too, like IKEA. Um, the companies that have great design, user experience, and, um, turn users into superhumans, they will win. And then the companies with boring background processes that are very fast, like Google, will win. So it's the same thing as what's been winning already. Um, and those big companies that we admire, it's like, well, Apple works about user experience. Google works on very high speed. Um, Virgin worked on treating people well. Um, they'll all get bought. They'll all get consolidated. Some of their spirits will be crushed. But those are the companies that people are investing in right now, aren't they? I mean. Microsoft's looking at, at user experience, um, and they've done a pretty good job with that. They also have great dividends, you know. So, um, I think those are some some things to look out for. It's pretty much always the same. <laughs> Keep calm and don't get crushed. Is that? <laughs> yeah. Stop racing to implement all the newest tech. Um, and if you do, you better be a Jeff Bezos type person. Like you better understand why. Don't just automate because automation is cool. It's not cool. It's just a series of issues that you haven't seen yet. It's, you know, you're going to have the same issues as what you had in your company before. It's just new issues, and you don't know anything about them. So like, figure out why you're going to automate. And take your time. But don't take your time and just like delaying decisions. Like Spend some Kairos time and interview lots of people. And see, you know, that kind of qualitative analysis will save you years. Um, you won't buy the wrong system. And listen to the lowest down on the food chain employees. Because um, but this has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for, 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 for sharing your thoughts with us. Yeah, no problem. And, uh, and, and enjoy the rest of the conference. And yeah. You're going to be on the keynote session, so uh, I guess. Yeah, it'll be fun. Get to talk to the, the CEO of Swift. So, yeah. hooray. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you so much. Cheers.